Have you ever been so frustrated at the world, at the actions of our leaders, of the actions of foreign leaders, that you just could scream in frustration? I ask this question because I know that here in 2023, many people's answers to me wouldn't be so much yes, Saul, more every hour on the hour, Saul. How about you? Feeling angry and frustrated at the capricious nature of the world around us and the seeming stupidity of our fellow human beings, it's a powerful emotion and it isn't just a modern thing. Humans have often felt like this. And in the next section of the story of London, we'll cover how the residents of London did feel like this, really deeply. In fact, the residents of London were about to see crisis after crisis impact England. They're about to see ineptitude, corruption, stupidity, short-sightedness, and outright betrayal on a scale they could not comprehend. They would speak out about this, preach about this, they would rage about this, and then finally, they're gonna snap. Book two of the story of London I've called The Kingdom of London because it represents a time when London began acting not like a Saxon market port, but the town saw itself like a noble lord. It basically went, oh, for sake, rolled up their sleeves and started acting. They're about to take it upon themselves to try and dictate who should be running the country. And it's not because anybody ever asked London to do this. The town never asked for this power. It was just going to take it. And over the next few decades, and by extension, over the next few hundred years, London was about to become an actual geopolitical force upon its nation. But to understand why it was going to do this, to understand how this came about, you have to understand the circumstances that drove London to such drastic measures. What caused the residents of London to snap like this? It's time to start to examine the utter disaster that was England in the next few decades. Hi, my name is Saul, and I'd like to welcome you to chapter 22 of the story of London. It's time to meet the Saxon Omnicrisis. One of the problems historians often fall prey to is that if you give people hindsight, they automatically assume they are smarter than everyone in the past. I mean, biologically speaking, no one on Earth today is actually smarter than anyone in the past. I mean, yes, sure, we have way better technology and we can see everything in the past with hindsight. But I mean... Look at the current state of our world today, the geopolitical situation going on, and now convince me that we are somehow smarter. Yeah, exactly. But that didn't stop a bunch of terribly ropey Victorian historians believing their hindsight, looking back at this era, made them a bunch of geniuses. And this is where we get from them the whole narrative that basically runs along the lines of 
the Anglo-Saxon Kingdom of England was doing fantastic. And then along came that utter idiot, Aethelred the Unready, and everything went downhill from him. It's a powerful narrative. It's the one I grew up with and was taught in at school. The problem is that was not the case at all. Aethelred ruled from the year 978 all the way until 1013, an incredibly long reign. But the thing is, every one of the problems he faced all originated and started before 978. The crisis, the actual Anglo-Saxon omni-crisis, originated before he took the throne, and he was the cause of none of it. Sure, he handled what's about to follow very badly. And there's a lot to say that Aethelred was nowhere near the best king of England. But he was blamed because everyone else involved wanted to get themselves out of the frame. Aethelred became a king-sized scapegoat for a lot of people. So let's look at the basic foundations of the problems as king, who in the year 980 was only a small child, inherited. Let's start with the obvious. A few years previous to 980, the powerful King Edgar died, and his only heirs are his infant sons, which means automatically the actual person who holds the title of King of England is completely unimportant. Who is important now are the adults around these children. They are, like it or not, in charge. And it is clear that immediately after Edgar's death, the adults just screwed up. With the death of such a stable king, the only correct response from any of the adults involved in these boys' lives, the, the eldermen and the bishops and whoever, would have been to put aside their personal differences and work together for the good of the state. And as far as we can tell, none of them did that. How can I justify saying that? Well, the whole Team Aetheling Edward versus Team Aetheling Athelred debates is indicative of a rivalry and politics going on. I said last chapter how some had said Edward displayed psychotic tendencies. He may have been. That also could have been slander created by folks who wanted to badmouth him. Maybe by the folks who murdered him. We don't know. The whole situation was fraught when it should not have been. In the last chapter, I suggested that the Edward v. Aethelred argument became a flag of convenience for all the sides in the ecclesiastical reforms debate. Allow me to go one further. Right now, in 980 and going forward, the nobility of the Anglo-Saxon state, all the nobility of the Anglo-Saxon state, every bloody one of the yeldermen and churls and earls and bishops and archbishops or whatever, to one extent or another, become engaged in a huge game of silly buggers with each other. And who holds the throne was to be one of many flags of convenience they would use to justify their nonsense. They were all part of a system that was breaking and they helped perpetuate the breaks and exacerbate them. All of them, every single one without exception, caused what was to follow. Now I'm not going to explore in full detail the incredibly complex world of high 
Anglo-Saxon nobility, or the intricate ties of marriage between them, or the confusing interpersonal politics of them all, we'd be here all year if I started. And I probably wouldn't do it justice. My explanation I just gave is a brutal summary, and I admit that. But it's also bare-bones accurate. Nor do I want to get lost in the miasma of their feuds, where they use politics or intrigue or often violence to go after their rivals and their enemies. We'd get lost. What I will say is that the only person who could have prevented this situation from happening would be a nice, big, strong king. Only there were only children available, so there isn't any nice, big, strong king. And what began as small, internal, political wildfires were able to burn out of control, which is what to colour and cloud the reign of King Aethelred of England. So keep that in mind. I'm not defending Aethelred. The man was a weak and ineffectual leader. But I am saying his time in office wasn't especially worse than any time had gone on before. The loss of centralised power, all the nobles undermining each other in factional politics, and a fragmentation of the kingdom. What England was facing now, Mercia had faced, Wessex had faced, Northumbria had faced, all of England had faced this many times before. Same as it ever was. The only difference here was that this crisis ran into a couple of crises going on elsewhere, and this compounded and made the situation worse. How? Well, all of this internal politics meant the country took its eye off the bigger geopolitical situation going on around it. And this is important, because it could not afford to do that, ever. If you remember last chapter, I spoke about the fact that we are fairly sure King Edgar had a working fleet of maybe up to as many as 60 ships. And according to tradition, they were mostly used to patrol the Irish Sea every couple of years. This makes sense. Remember, since the age of Ivor the Boneless, the Vikings based on the Irish Sea, the Norse Gale diaspora of the region, had been a scourge upon England, and especially Northumbria. The Irish Sea at this moment was divided into a score of small settlements, but they were all linked by a common Norse heritage. This region was the true birthplace of the Viking movement, and the men on the ships of the Irish Sea of the Norse Gale diaspora were the naval military superpower of this region. Until King Edgar of England. And all Edgar had done from the descriptions was just show them he had ships. See, ships changed everything. Think about it from a Viking point of view. As we explored in several previous chapters, when you're based at sea, you always held the advantage over land-based forces. Always. Your average Viking raiding force, when it attacked any country, could be outnumbered 10,000 to 1 in a straight fight in that nation. But what they lacked in numbers, they compensated for with strategic manoeuvrability. If you had access to sea and to rivers, you could always sail to where the opposing army was not located. Raid and retreat, stay agile, avoid their big armies, hit their soft underbellies. But if the defenders had ships, a sizable force of maybe up to 60 ships, okay, now you're in trouble. Serious trouble. 
If you landed somewhere, these buggers could follow you in. While you were busy attacking some town or village, they could attack your boats, sink them. Without your ships, you are now just a very small land-based force who would be overwhelmed eventually. From the defender's point of view then, you made ships primarily to remove the advantage of sea-based raiders. And this is what Edgar did. He created a fleet and basically just sailed it up and down the Irish Sea, just showing the Norse-Gale diaspora that it existed. The Norse-Gale Vikings understood that message. And again, this is perhaps exactly why we have that whole symbolic moment I mentioned in a previous chapter, where... King Edgar was rowed across a river by a bunch of kings. The leaders who rolled him were the rulers of, according to tradition, North Wales and South Wales, the Isle of Man, the Hebrides, Strathclyde, Galloway, princes from the diaspora of the Irish Sea symbolically submitting to the sea power of the English. It's worth remembering that two centuries later, King Edgar would be remembered with these following words, quote, He alone ruled over all the kings, and over the Scots and the Welsh. Never since Arthur had any king so much power, unquote. Notice all the kings. I mean, they mention the Scots and the Welsh, but he ruled over more. Who were the others? That is what the English fleet supposedly gave him and gave the kingdom the ability to subdue the Vikings of the Irish Sea. I mean, do I have any proof of this theory? Well, there were no Viking raids on England during the latter reign of Edgar. None. There was a fleet, after all. And then, in 975, King Edgar dies, and in England, the game of jostling between the various nobles begins. The nobles of England start engaging in shenanigans. They start targeting the new monasteries. I mean, the very bodies who were supposedly supplying the ship soak, the very bodies supplying England's deterrence on the sea. The ship soak seems to have stopped. The new reformed monasteries were now focused on staying out of trouble or remaining out of the hands of their internal enemies to supply ships. If from 977, say, then there's no provisions to be ships, that would have been noticeable to the Norse-Gale Vikings. Now, if this fleet patrolled the Irish Sea every year, that would have been noticeable instantly. But maybe it only needed to patrol every couple of years. So not appearing on the Irish Sea in 977 wasn't itself a big deal. But if there was no fleet appearing in the year 978, oh, that would have been noticeable. Like wolves high in the hinterlands of the mountains, the hungry Viking diaspora would have gazed down into the meadows of the farmlands below and seen no guard dogs. These Norse would have began to talk. Crews would have sought out crews. The old ways of the Irish Sea, the hierarchy, where ships would elect their leaders and these leaders would band together into raiding fleets, were restarted, reinstituted. 
back before the days of the great heathen army and the campaigns that came after it, back when it was just every man for himself, the old methods were revived. The wolves began to pad down from the mountains, aiming for the innocent flocks of sheep. That they had almost two centuries before, these Vikings would have probably sent traders in beforehand to buy and sell goods, but also to watch, to listen, to see the state of preparedness, to gather information. This was, after all, the nation of England. It had taken the best of them, the most powerful of them, Olaf Guthrism, and it had spat him out. This is the kingdom that had absorbed and destroyed Eric Bloodaxe. The Norse Gales would not underestimate them. Carefully, the wolves approached their targets. The year 979 passed. There was no fleet. The sheep were unguarded. As they wintered in their homes, the diaspora knew, just knew, that the mighty state of England was unprepared. They knew, just knew, that what they had in front of them was the chance of great plunder, if not more. And as spring dawned in the year 980, the wolves struck. The first target suggested the diaspora was driving this entire campaign. A large army, the quote, pirate army of the north, unquote, which sounds like it's referring to the main body of the diaspora, fell upon Chester and looted it. And then they raided Southampton. The Chronicle says that Southampton was, quote, plundered by a pirate army, and most of the population slain or imprisoned, unquote. There are clues in that sentence, a pirate army, and not just pirates, suggesting a standing body of Vikings, a large force. And in this year, the only large force of Vikings were the diaspora of the Irish Sea. Secondly, it also says they were imprisoned, which means a large number were captured to become slaves. And the biggest slave markets in Europe, the Norse Gale port of Dublin, who was at the time still led by Olaf Kuran, who had twice had taken Jorvik, and he knew well how to handle the English. This was a tsunami wave that could have seen another campaign launched upon England, only it didn't. It remained just raiding. Why? Luck, really, luck and chaos. See, we know in the year 980, the Vikings of the diaspora of the Irish Sea suddenly gathered in Ireland an army, a great pirate army, comprising of the Vikings of Dublin and the Hebrides and probably the Isle of Man, gathered at the hill of Tara. And there they faced a force of the King of Meath, Mael Shacknell, and a battle took place. And while it's not as famous as the later battle of Clontuff, the Battle of Tara saw the Viking army destroyed, and in its aftermath, Dublin besieged by the Irish. The Norse Gael of Dublin submitted to the Irish king. Ulf Curran went into exile and died in the monastery of Iona, and there was no more armies of Vikings from the diaspora. And given the peace deal with the Irish king demanded a regular tribute, the Norse Gael survivors, still holding their fleets, just focused on raiding 
Cornwall and Devon and the west of England for the next 10 years, there was still carnage in England and no mention of an English fleet to dissuade them or combat them or exploit this weakening of the one superpower on the waters. But this wasn't the only crisis taking place. Because in amidst all the Viking attacks in the year 980, there's a single Viking raid in England that had nothing to do, or seemed to have nothing to do, with the diaspora of the Irish Sea. And to understand why that one happened, we need to understand an entirely separate crisis taking place many miles away. So, for a podcast about London, I crave your indulgence, as we need to travel far away from our city. But I promise this next part will provide context to a much more important element of the story later on. We need to go back a few years and travel many miles away to Scandinavia, because England was not the only place in utter chaos at this time. So are the distant nations of Norway and Denmark, and that chaos was going to change London forever. And to understand that, we need to start with Norway. So Norway is under the rule of a man called King Hakon the Good. You may remember Hakon the Good or Hakon the Good. He was a young Norwegian prince who was born of King Harald Fairhair, who was the king who ruled some of Norway, but not all of Norway. Hakon had been sent to be raised in the court of Æthelstan, that dynamic and awesome king of England. And when he was old enough, he had sailed back to Norway, which was at the time under the rulership of his older brother, a man called Eric Brotherkiller, or Eric Bloodaxe. Now, with a nickname in Latin of Brotherkiller, you can figure that Hakon knew that he wasn't going to go back and expect big hugs and kisses. He was going to have to fight. But the king's other nickname was Bloodaxe, which denotes the fact that he was a bit of a king in the style of Conan the Barbarian. You know, all blood and skull and kill them first before they can betray you types. <laughs> Which meant that Hakon had a lot of support from the moment he arrived and so he was able to depose his brother and did so and became known as King Hakon the Good or King Hakon the Good. Uh, we've covered the story of Eric last chapter. Eric ran off to Orkney, there raised an army and decided he wanted to take the kingdom of Jorvik. But then he dies in battle. Yet the last thing he did before he marched out for his final battle was to send away his many sons. And so the sons of Eric Bloodaxe are out there and they have an axe to grind with their uncle Hakon back in Norway. Some years pass. Hakon, Hakon, I'm never too sure how to pronounce that one, expands his lands, but it's never the most stable place, mainly because you know, the sons of Eric keep turning up and attacking him. And they keep losing. In fact, they keep losing all the time. Each time their numbers get less and less. But still they try. And then, in one of their later attempts, they get the help of a powerful Viking. A man called King Gorm the Old. Now, as far as we can tell, Gorm was the ruler of Jutland, which was a chunk of Denmark. Not all of Denmark, but a chunk of Denmark. And as far as we can tell, one of the sons of Eric had married Gorm's daughter. So he had a reason to join in. And Gorm and his Vikings join forces with the sons of Eric and their Vikings, and they attack Hakon the Good. And they lose, and Hakon wins again. And Gorm returns home. And soon afterwards, he passes off this mortal coil. And he succeeded to his throne by his son, Harold Gormson. 
but no one calls Harum Gornson by that name. They call him by his nickname, Bluetooth. And Harold Bluetooth is an ambitious man. He wants to expand his holdings into the Baltic Sea. The Baltic Sea is great, by the way, at this time. It's very profitable. The Dispora Norse communities have expanded deep into the lands of what would become known as Russia. It was a real growth market. So Bluetooth obviously wanted in on this action. But to do that, he needed to secure his borders. So King Harold Bluetooth basically starts going about the business of taking all of Denmark. Meanwhile, with virtually the last throw of the dice, the last few sons of Eric Brotherkiller attack Hakon the Good in Norway again. And they lose again. But this time Hakon is injured, he doesn't recover, and now finally, finally, one of the sons of Eric Bloodaxe, a warrior called Harold Greycloak, becomes King of Norway in the year 961, and then proceeds to act like his father did and basically institute a reign of terror on everybody's ass. Now this offered an opportunity to the nearby, now King of all Denmark, Harold Bluetooth. He takes a fleet north and sailed to Norway. Greycloak very quickly saw which way the wind was blowing, and rather than fight off the Danes while trying to keep a lid on his own people, he decided he just wanted to keep a lid on his own people. So he bent the knee and Bluetooth was doing a bit of an Athelstan and uniting both all the lands around him. And he could now focus to expand on the, you know, his territories. All is going well for Bluetooth. But Bluetooth never took his eye off the bigger geopolitical picture. His lands bordered with the Holy Roman Empire. And he lived endlessly under the worry that one day some great big Christian Germanic sausage of a ruler, like Otto I, the Holy Roman Emperor, could just decide that since Denmark was pagan, it was time to introduce the pagans to our Lord and Saviour via a very large act. So Bluetooth made a political calculation as far as we can tell. He converted to Christianity in 965. But he was also, as far as we can tell, fairly easygoing as to who was Christian and who was not. He wanted to take things slow so as not to provoke a revolt. And at first, he seems to have got the balance right. Meanwhile, back north in Norway, Harold Greycloak was building up his power base and burging everyone he suspected of disloyalty. It looked like Greycloak was going to try and make a break for independence. <laughs> Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. Bluetooth couldn't take the chance. And so, in 971, Bluetooth invited King Greycloak down to meet him in Denmark. And when he arrived, he introduced him to the son of one of the Norwegians whom Greycloak had just purged, a man called Hakon Sigerson. And Sigerson introduced Greycloak and eventually the remaining sons of Eric to the sharp end of an axe. And that was the end of them. Harold Bluetooth makes Hakon Sigerson the king of Norway, or the Jarl of Norway under him, and continues to be impressive and stuff. And then, an opportunity falls into Bluetooth's lap. Otto the Great, the Holy Roman Empire, big German sausage, dies. And in his place, the half-German, half-English big Holy Roman Emperor sausage, Otto II. Bluetooth sees an opportunity, 
and decides he's going to gather his armies and march south and invade Saxony and go to war with Otto II in the year 974 and promptly has his ass handed to him on a plate. Bluetooth slinks back to Denmark and his authority begins to fragment. Things start to fall apart just as badly as they were doing currently over in England. Bluetooth panics and tries to re-establish his authority. He orders the Jarl of Norway, Hakon Sigurdsson, to convert Christianity, to prove his loyalty. Hakon does, but this forced conversion, coupled with the heavy-handed nature of it, means Sigurdsson basically sails back home and declares independence. And a bunch of Danish Jarls all rebel against Bluetooth, including his son, Sven Forkbeard. And that means, right now, the Scandinavian lands are in as actually more chaos than England is. There is instability, there is warfare, there is death, and there's way too many games of, hey, let's go die for a Jarl. And somewhere along the way, someone must have asked, you know, are those cousins of ours living in the Irish Sea diaspora? They're doing good raiding the West, aren't they? Maybe we should start raiding West again. And so they did. And either in conjunction with the diaspora of the Irish Sea, or coincidentally, but the first time in generations, actual Scandinavians from Scandinavia and not from the diaspora started attacking the East coast of England and their attacks sound like a rerun of the Vikings greatest hits from yesteryear which is why we're saying in 980 well they attacked Thanet and then they go on to attack Lindsay and in a nutshell the Scandinavian crisis and the Irish Sea crisis have run into a Saxon crisis and all three working together and I haven't even mentioned and I will not go into detail about the crisis taking place in the south, in Frankish lands, which basically saw the Viking diaspora-ruled province of Normandy work out that the quickest way to avoid the whole new spirit of let's go a Viking from happening to them is to open their ports to the Scandinavians and to let them find safe shelter and ready customers to sell their recently stolen loot to. So in a nutshell, the Omni-Crisis was. The Anglo-Saxon nobility was mostly playing reindeer games with one another to settle old scores and to become top dog and to line their own pockets. The fleet that had been set up by Edgar had been allowed to wither on the vine, allowing the Vikings free reign and kick-starting a return to Viking raids from the diaspora, which was only reduced to just raids, probably because of internal politics back in Ireland. The Scandinavian regions were in chaos, driving a new generation of Vikings from there outwards into the North Sea. Normandy was allowing Vikings from both sides safe anchorage in their ports, and the king was only a child, and his older brother had just been murdered. This is the basic starting position and crisis that would eventually cause London to take all matters into their own hands. And yet I end this chapter by returning to London with one final footnote from history. And it's an important footnote. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle states in its entry for 982 the following, quote, In this year came up in Dorsetshire three ships of the pirates and plundered in Portland. The same year London was burned, unquote. Well, this entry is obviously significant. 
I mean, it begins with a description of a small Viking raiding force of three ships attacking Portland. Small, by the way, not gigantic, like the one that hit Southampton only three years earlier, adding credence to the idea that the giant pirate army had been destroyed by the Irish. But then the chronicle says London was burned. And the inference everyone seems to take is that London was burned by the Vikings. So while I have no proof of this, allow me to offer my own opinion here and now. I don't think it was. No, it, it actually wasn't. The entry for the year after it mentions this changes tact and talks about two aldermen who just died and where their bodies were buried and then two abbesses who died and then it talks about Otto rampaging against the Muslims in Greece. It pivots, it's recording events, but the events are not always related to one another. In 982, there was a Viking attack on Portland by three ships. Just three ships. The end. Full stop. New sentence. The same year, London was burned. Full stop. Basically, London had a fire. Around 20 years since the last big fire, which destroyed St. Paul's. Which is about 20 years since the fire in 940, which may or may not have happened, and may or may not have been put out by a passing Scottish saint. My point, this town is mostly made of wood. We know there are fires going on all the way back to when it was Londonwick over in Covent Garden. Fires happen. And given the town has ferocious walls, given the town that everyone who attacked London in the next few decades are going to utterly fail to take it by force, given the ferocity of the defenders, given the fact that we know it had fleets of fishing ships going all the way back to the age of the king before Alfred, and that during Alfred's reigns it had gained Viking longships and was probably the principal place of organising fleet-based defences, and based on everything that comes later, in 982 there was not a Viking raid on London. The town just caught fire, and then it rebuilt itself. The fire of 982 then was a calamity but not a Viking-caused one. Now, if there are more learned and specialist historians out there, who have strong evidence that a raid did take place. Some texts I did not find in my research, or maybe I've got the dates wrong. I invite them to get in contact and let me know, and I'll correct myself. But I earnestly believe with all that was going on, the Vikings did not raid the town that year. Still, the fire, coupled with the overall omni-crisis, would have made the mood of Londoners somewhat darker. London's anger was rising. The rest of the kingdom may have been terrified of the sudden onslaught by the Vikings, but London? I honestly feel that based on how I read the climate of the t city at the time, God help the damn Vikings. London was growling, and it was just about to roar. And that's it for today's episode. As always, if you look in the description, you'll find a link to the rough script that I'm reading from right now. And it's freely shared for anybody who wants to read along as well as listen along. And I've included pictures and maps and things I found along the way of researching it. I hope everyone listening is well. I'd like to thank everyone who has followed along the series so far. The audience grows. And the people who have commented on Imgur and elsewhere, thank you. If you have any questions for me, leave them under the scripts and I'll answer them there or in a future episode. Anyway, that's all from me this week. I'll see you next week for another chapter in the story of London. London.